Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one sealed on the throne. It had writing on the front and the back, and it was sealed with seven seals. I saw a powerful angel who proclaimed in a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or earth or under the sun could open the scroll or look inside it. So I began to weep and weep because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look inside it. Then one of the elders said to me, don't weep. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has emerged victorious so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Story of the Lord. Oh, there's a little bit more if you want to. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Okay, excuse me. Okay, then in between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing to be had been slain. It had seven horns and seven eyes, which are God's seven spirits, sent out into the whole earth. He came forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one seated on the throne. When he took the scroll, the four of the living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each held a harp and a gold bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They took up in a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, because you were slain. And by your blood it purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will rule on earth. Then I looked, and I heard the sound of many angels surrounding the throne, the living creatures, and the elders. They numbered into the millions, thousands upon thousands. They said in a loud voice, Worthy is the slaughtered lamb to receive power, wealth, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. That's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much, Gary. <laughs> Thank you so much, Gary. We really appreciate it. Would you guys pray with me as we begin? Lord, um, open our imagination um, so that we may anticipate the unexpected. Um, may we see simple and ordinary objects and recognize its place of gravity in worship. Um, Lord, help us orientate our eyes to you, lion and lamb, alpha and omega, beginning and the end. Amen. So I have a question to begin us today, um, and I'd like to pose this to you guys. Uh, what makes or breaks a really good story? Whether it's like a movie, or a TV show, or a play, or a novel, what really makes it great? You know, what makes it Oscar-worthy? Emotion, yeah. Emotion, uh, characters, um, all of the above. I know for me, um, I love acting. Um, this is a thing I've done my whole life, um, but I specifically love voice acting. Um, and the one of the things I like to do um, is kind of preview the script to see what's going on. Um, and as a super, super novice voice actress, whenever I look at a script, I can tell pretty early on um, if it's going to be a good story or not. Um, I do this not necessarily by checking the grammar, although that's always important, um, or not just looking at the beginning um, or looking straight at the end, but I look and focus on like the middle-ish towards the end. Um, I look for this one crucial element, the unexpected plot twist. Because authors will use um, different techniques to create that perfect plot twist. 
Um, authors will use like subtle misdirection or even subtler foreshadowing to uh, create a false sense of predictability. Um, the viewer or the reader, um, if you will, thinks that they know how the story is gonna end, um, but then the author has a trick up their sleeve. I think a good plot twist subverts the reader's expectations. It forces the reader to think about the plot twist, even if years have passed on and on, they're still thinking about that story. And there's so many good examples of plot twists all through different medias. Um, and I'll be careful not to spoil too many because we don't want to hear that this morning. <laughs> but uh, perhaps one of the most famous movie examples comes from the Star Wars franchise. Um, when Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back was released, there was just the sheer uproar filled in thousands of theaters across the country when, I mean, I don't want to spoil it, but it's when a certain character who is the villain uh, reveals to another certain character who is the hero that he is his father. Like, boom, plot twist. Um, and don't get me started on who like the hero's sister is. That's just a whole other can of worms. Yet another plot twist. Um, <laughs> or sometimes uh, these plot twists aren't always so expect like unexpected. Um, sometimes these plot twists were actually really obvious all away the time, all along. Uh, take, for instance, there's this new movie um, called The Glass Onion. Um, the whole idea of a glass onion, first of all, is kind of like an oxymoron. Uh, glass onions aren't really, that, that, that just doesn't make sense. Because um, onions have layers, as I learned from the movie Shrek, and as well as glass is transparent. Uh, the glass onion comes from the title of a Beatles song, who at this time, the Beatles were just kind of mocking their listeners for trying to read in symbolism uh, to their music, um, and so called it a glass onion. Um, so without getting spoilers into that new movie, uh, the movie Glass Onion does essentially the same thing. It mocks their um, audience. Um, like an onion, uh, this movie has a lot of different layers, um, but the actual story is so simple that really anyone should have just seen it right then and there from the beginning. They should have seen the ending coming. I mean, I could go on and on and on and on about so many good pop culture references. I think we can spend hours and hours talking about our favorite plot twists. Yet, you really don't have to go too far to find some of that the best plot twist ever created and ever um, possibly imagined come from the Bible. Um, it's beautiful. Throughout the Bible, we see that God is flipping the script in some beautiful and miraculous ways. For instance, um, in the Old Testament, God promises Abraham that he will make him a great nation, despite the fact that Abraham and Sarah had not been able to have kids in their near their 70s and 80s. I mean, through God, the childless become abundant, the powerful are usurped off their thrones, and the lowly are lifted up, to quote uh, Mary's Magnificant. Um, there is so many plot twists after plot twists in the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, and it really just seems like God is in the business of flipping the script. But um, what if I were to say that perhaps one of the greatest plot twists in all of the Bible might just be found in the book of Revelation? Now you might be wondering, uh, why are we talking about the book of Revelation during Epiphany? 
Uh, typically, if you aren't um, too familiar with the church calendar, Epiphany is the time after Christmas where we explore the journey of the Magi, uh, where we discover Jesus' baptism, and we talk about his first miracle. Um, and I get that question. Why bring it up right now? Um, it feels like a bit of a jump to go from Christ's birth to the very end of the Bible. Um, but no matter where we are in time or space, we're always in a season of epiphany. Uh, the revelation that Christ is king. It's always happening from the beginning and end. Jesus is present. But still, when I mention that word, revelation, uh, maybe there's a lot of images that come to mind for you. Um, honestly, if you'd asked me a year ago, I would have never dreamt about talking about Revelation or preaching about it regardless. Um, a year ago, if you'd asked me to name probably the worst book of the Bible, quotes on that, I would have probably said the book of Revelation. Um, maybe, like some of you, I was terrified of the book of Revelation growing up. I always feel like most of us have had this moment. If you haven't, then maybe I'm just crazy. But I had this moment when I was a kid um, that I remember the house would go completely quiet and that I couldn't find my parents anywhere and I swore that the rapture just happened. I swore everyone was gone. I was the one left behind. It was a disaster. I'd cry and ask for forgiveness and then my mom would show up like two minutes later. So, I mean, I feel like most of us, if not, then maybe it's just me. But I've had those moments. And honestly, um, this horrified view of Revelation I believe, is much more influenced by pop culture than it is by the actual Bible. But it took me a very long time to realize this. It took me a very long time that my idea of revelation was much more movies and books rather than the Bible. Um, so with fear and trembling and resistance, I decided I would enroll in a class on the book of Revelation at the Duke Divinity School um, last semester. And it was a lot of resistance. I wasn't sure if I wanted to do this. Um, and boom, plot twist, I actually came to love it. It was my favorite class I had taken. Um, I really love the Old Testament, um, love the New Testament, of course, but I love the imagery that the book of Revelation has with the Old Testament. Um, and it took me a while, though, to really appreciate the book of Revelation. It took me a long time. Um, this required a lot of rewiring in my mind it took me a while to go back to those moments that I thought the rapture had happened, you know, come back to those moments and realize maybe there's another way to understand this strange but beautiful book. And uh, I'm not trying to make this a sermon about the introduction to the book of Revelation. Um, that's not what this sermon is about. But if there's one thing I can say um, about Revelation is that it is full of drama. It is full of sensations of taste and smells and sight. And it's full of politically subversive symbols. It's full of plot twists. And I argue that the best stories are the ones with those unexpected plot twists that no one would have ever seen coming, even the writer themselves. And that's exactly what we get in Revelation 5, which Gary read for us. So the book of Revelation uh, begins with uh, John, who is exiled on the island of Patmos. And he's writing to seven churches across Asia Minor. But then there's this sudden shift um, in genre, going from some straight, you know, straightforward letters, like you kind of see Paul writing, and then going to some very shocking and strange visions. 
um, things are now happening on a whole entire other dimension. Uh, in chapter 4, John and the reader are teleported into the spirit, into the heavenly throne room. Chapter 4 describes this very vibrant, beautiful scene of worship. Definitely read it if you can. Uh, there are four living creatures, which is imagery from Daniel, and there are 24 elders, um, and they're all worshiping and praising the one seated on the throne. But here comes the conflict. In chapter 5, the one seated on the throne opens their right hand, and in that hand is seven seals, or a scroll with seven seals. And the angel asks, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one raises their hand to do it. It seems that no one is worthy to do it. And yet, uh, in the midst of this sadness and confusion why no one raises their hand, suddenly one of the elders in the room says, see, here comes the lion of the tribe of Judah. The lion, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open up the scrolls and its seven seals. So what you'd expect is this large, ferocious lion, right, walking down, breaking the seals. But instead, what you get is a slaughtered lamb. Like, boom, plot twist. I mean, pay attention to this title of the creature. It's called the slaughtered lamb. John pairs the word lamb with this adjective slaughtered, very passive-sounding words, um, very weak. And yet... Uh, John is aligning this startlingly weak lamb with the symbol of the utmost power in all of the universe, which is the heavenly throne we saw in chapter 4. And so these two images are merged together, the throne and the lamb, and they're conjured up in yet another plot twist. The lamb shares divinity with the one who is seated on the throne. Both the one on the throne and the lamb are worthy to be praised. That word worship actually comes from that word worthy. Same word. The lamb is worshipped in the very same way as the one on the throne is worshipped. But for the lamb, uh, the elders decide to make an entirely new song, as verse 9 puts it. The elders proclaim that it's the lamb's like very slaughterness um, that makes him worthy. The lamb hasn't even opened the scrolls yet. The lamb hasn't done anything. And yet the 24 elders sing with full confidence, you are worthy to break, uh, take the scroll and break its seals because you were slaughtered. Because you were slaughtered. And today I, I really want to hold into tension um, that Jesus is both this lion and lamb figure. The imagery may sound strange, and yes, it is very strange, but Jesus is supposed to be this lion and lamb figure we're talking about in this um, Revelation 5. Jesus, um, as the lion, signifies that Jesus has the power. In the Old Testament, also in ancient context, the lion was this symbol of authority. Um, it was, you know, often on different armor and such. And Jesus, as the lion, has the capacity to wound or kill anyone he pleases. And yet, uh, Jesus appears as the lamb, the lamb who had been wounded. 
And let me be clear, uh, the word slaughtered does not necessarily mean like utterly helpless. Throughout Revelation, uh, we see that the lamb is disposes of Satan. He takes up the sword of God's word, and he leads battles against Satan's foes in uh, Revelation 19. Um, although he suffered greatly and suffered, suffered so much, the lamb is victorious. New Testament scholar Brian Blount argues that the title, uh, Slaughtered Lamb, is not so much a descriptive and passive noun as it is a paradoxical action verb. The blood of the lamb is empowering. Hear that today. The blood of the lamb is empowering. And the elders proclaim that it's because of the lamb's slaughter that we, you and I, here today, are made into a kingdom of priests. We are brought into God's family. That is good news for us today. And yet, and yet I, I honestly wonder, I wonder if at times this imagery is just not enough. If I can be honest, um, when I read this passage, I was just not all that impressed. It was weird, but I was also just not impressed. I was almost disappointed in a lot of ways, because I want the big, bigger, biggest that God has to offer, but then we get a lamb, and not only do we get a lamb, but we get a lamb who had been tortured. I mean, where's the possess? Where is the Oscar-winning effects? Where is the terrifying monsters that I'm used to seeing in Hollywood films about Revelation? Where is all of this? I think it's so easy to ignore this lamb and look forward to the big, bigger, biggest that God has to offer or that life has to offer. To be honest, there really isn't that much glamour when it comes to suffering. I feel like I don't have to say that. I think we've all suffered in different ways. I don't need to say that it is unglamorous. It plainly is unglamorous. It's something we're naturally opposed to. It's painful. And I think now more than ever, there are so many other remedies or competing narratives or objects of worship that demand our attention more that we want to grab onto and much rather cherish. Um, maybe things like work, um, family, um, academics for myself, definitely, um, prosperity, yourself, your spouse, your children, uh, your political um, ideology, um, this country. The issue with these um, objects of worship is that they're often unconscious, where you usually make a conscious decision to follow Jesus. You, those other things are not always right at the forefront of your head. I think everyone, I've heard this said many times before, but I think everyone is worshiping something, even if you don't think you are. You're always worshiping some sort of object. And all of these objects that I mentioned, work, family, prosperity, yourself, your spouse, your kids, um, even if they're good objects, um, even if they're really, really well and wonderful, they demand to be the center throne of our attention. They are asking to be what we focus on and worship. But our passage today reminds us that the only place of worship is for the slaughtered lamb. The lamb who was slain. 
Epiphany is this season of revelation. It is a sneak peek of to see who Christ is. Um, And this passage gives us that sneak peek. This text requires us to constantly fix our eyes on Jesus, um, whichever way he goes or whatever shape he takes. Despite the um, glamour or violence or um, chaos of this world, we must direct our attention to the lordship of the Lamb. Epiphany is also this season of apocalypse, but the world is not being destroyed as I once always thought that Revelation is talking about. Rather, the world um, is being transformed and flipped upside down in a beautiful way. This requires us to look um, for Jesus where we least expect him. We find that the presence of Jesus is often with those that are suffering most. The sick, the neglected, the marginalized, the brokenhearted, the addict, the refugee, the neglected. And lastly, this text requires that our expectations must be subverted. This requires a receptiveness to the unassuming yet all-consuming kingdom of God. Thanks be to God.